You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. this week. <laughs> Holy cow. Fun ones. Uh, yeah, and some that are, are going to be more fun to talk about than they were to watch, I suspect. Yeah, quite a bit. Quite yeah. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but joining me on this week's Digital Noise is Aaron. Woo woo. How you doing? Who's, who's graduated up to being a highly suspect reviewer of late as well. It's what I do. I stalked my way in. <laughs> yeah, you and a lot of people believe yeah. it. Uh, Harris admitted to me once that uh, way back in the spill days, he started coming in the bar. I was working and hanging out all the time because he was hoping I would eventually ask him to come be on, on League of <laughs> Extremely Ordinary Gentlemen, and that's what happened. Uh, anyway, yeah, we have a lot of movies to talk about. First, get the cleaning out of the way. Of course, thank you to all you subscribers out there. Hey, do you not know that there's such a thing as subscriptions at oneofus.net? Well, you should, because honestly, even though this podcast is free and a lot of our podcasts are totally free, the only way we can afford to keep making these podcasts is by you guys becoming subscribers. And it's so inexpensive. I mean, really, you would never even notice the two, five dollar, ten dollar, twenty five dollar, those four tiers. I mean, come on, you know, you can afford one of those without even thinking twice about it. And it's what's makes no difference to you, which you won't even notice makes a huge difference to us at one of us.net. If you're listening to these podcasts, please consider becoming a subscriber. It is the only way we can keep going. And there's lots of bonus content for you guys in the forums as well. Lots of extra podcasts, including our still relatively newish, The Gathering, which is our bi-weekly party podcast. I guess that is new. That's been my favorite to listen to. We've only done 12 of them so far, but that being said, each each one is like three full podcasts, basically. So you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. And you can hear everybody get progressively and more and more drunk as the night goes on. It's and, delightful. And speaking of people getting progressively more and more drunk during the gathering and our other podcasts, our beer sponsor is Oscar Blues Brewery. Right now, Aaron is, in fact, drinking their Scotch Ale Old Chub. Watch out, Aaron. That one's a little on the dangerous side, but it sure <laughs> is tasty. I've gotten in, in trouble with uh, the Old Chub more than once, but they have a lot of different beers to choose from. They're the first craft brewery to put their beer in a can with their incredible Dale's Pale Ale. Really, really delicious and definitely one of the most popular ones to drink among our crew. I can't keep that one in stock. They, they're they like, oh, uh, I, I think I drank your last Dale's Pale Ale. I'm like, you and everybody else. But uh, so many great ones to choose from. And you can also go visit them at their brew pubs. Two in Colorado, one in North Carolina, and one in Austin. Please drink Oscar Blues. Please become a subscriber. You know. Anyway, with all that being said, let's get on to the reviews. And let's start it out. With the Criterion release this week, which is Sex, Lies, and Videotape. This is the movie that uh, launched the career of Steven Soderbergh, who... You are jumping right into what may already be my pick of the okay. week. <laughs> uh, he wrote, directed, and edited it all by himself. Well, it's because of Soderbergh. He does everything. He, he probably he, DP'd it, too. Right. <laughs> he's, he's known for, for uh, being very hands-on, for sure. At the 1989 Cannes Film Festival, it won the Palm Door and became one of those movies that everybody was talking about, and certainly revitalized the career of James Spader, who was at that point floundering a bit. He was one of those Brat Pack guys who never quite like hit 
a household name the way a lot of the rest of them did. You know, he was there, but never really reached the heights of, say, your your Jed Nelsons or your Emilio Estevez's. And but by this point, everybody's career was kind of. And it's interesting. So James Spader is almost entirely why this movie took me by such surprise. So. I have spent the last 20 years of my life thinking this was this really seedy movie about this shithead guy who comes in and, like, breaks up a couple. And so I I really expected James Spader to be that kind of uh, seductor, seductor who comes in and just steals the life. And that's not what this movie no. is at all. In fact, there's not even any nudity in this film. Not even... In fact, there's... Kind of a sex scene, yeah. Not, not even, even then; really. it's not really. The, but like, yeah, it's not. A, it's it's exploring ideas of sex and and uh, like people's neuroses about sex and and oh. and what their hangups are, but not in a seedy way. No, yeah. it, it ended up like to me. This worked a lot for me because the movie really was this uh, shining example of how truth in a relationship really will build it and continue on because ultimately, and actually we're jumping ahead the plot. Basically James Spader is this drifter like guy who comes into his college buddy to stay with him for a bit while he comes Peter back Storm, home. Peter Gallagher, Peter Gallagher and the actress who I should know who I can't remember. Andy McDowell. That is Peter Gallagher's wife and Peter Gallagher and I think they'll have a, a let's say an unpleasant relationship. Uh, Somewhat they frigid. haven't had sex in months. Yeah. She's going through therapy. In fact, the movie opens with a therapy session where someone is talking all about how fucked up their life is, and it's just like I'm sure everybody else is this way. <laughs> and you're like, no, nobody, <laughs> <laughs> just you, pal. But and so James Spader comes in, and basically uh, he has this art project where he interviews women about sex. Doesn't touch them, doesn't ask them to I mean, do anything. art project is a strong word for what it is. I mean, he's not doing well, it for the sake of art. He, I, I didn't want to... Yeah. He has, the, you he has, find out the why later yeah, on. And he, that's part of his ultimate reveal. But really, he just has this project, I'll call it. And so... and All he does is he sits down and he has a conversation and he asks these women very frank on questions. Camera about sex and their life and their relationship to sex. And that, that thinking about your life sincerely causes them to make drastic changes in their lives. Or at least that was the really interesting part. Right. Like for a movie that's essentially a few conversations and some videotapes, this thing had me enthralled for almost from second one to the very end. Part of it is it's just got such great dialogue. It has great performances. Annie McDowell uh, is kind of a nice Southern girl who's kind of intrigued by this mystery man who seems, who's very handsome, obviously, but like uh, is definitely odd right from the get go. Uh, Peter Gallagher is having an affair with her sister, played by Laura San Giacomo. Man, I forgot how sexy she was. Holy shit! Like, That's a great job too. Yeah, and she, yeah, she, she's wonderful in this. And Spader has that just that right, almost impossible to define how he got it just right level of like this should be distressingly sleazy what he's doing, but it's not. I mean, he has no intention of, uh, nor does he want to touch any of these women or seduce them at all. I'm pretty sure there's a couple of parts where he's asked, like, do you want to do something? He's like, no, yeah, I don't. Yeah. 
I'm um, good to stay here. But watching their his and Andy McDowell's lives start to collide eventually through the machinations of the plot is actually quite interesting. Um, it's a simple movie. It's filmed very inexpensively. Certainly, you can tell how low budget it is just watching it. Yet there is something truly mesmerizing about the whole thing, watching yeah. it play out. And I love that, in a way, Andy McDowell, who at first is presented as kind of a dormouse of a character, is turns out to be the strongest one of everyone, oh. basically, in, in a way, psychologically turning the tables yeah. on James Spader. It's the only time I've ever seen a movie where, like, partway through the movie, she reveals one of the reasons why she's a dormouse is because she doesn't want to be her sister, and her sister likes sex. Right. And that little reveal, which is such a nothing thing, is this huge, powerful moment when it happens in the movie. Like, uh, I encourage as many people out there to watch this as they can, especially if you're in a relationship because it just shows the power that being honest about what you want and what you like can have. Uh, agreed. There's a, definitely one of those films you can imagine. There's a lot of conversation after you see it in a, yeah. on a date. And uh, hopefully in a good way. Hopefully in a good way. <laughs> I could see this also ending a relationship yeah. or two. But uh, this is a Criterion release, so of course there's a lot of good bonus features, including three interviews with Soderbergh. Uh, one, a modern day one, where he looks back on it for seven minutes. One from 1992. Uh, and then one from 1990. Uh, then there's a brand new documentary that interviews Gall- Peter Gallagher, Andy McDowell, and Larsan Giacomo were, uh, uh, talking about their memories of working on this film. Uh, there is a excerpt from NBC's Today Show with James Spader talking about uh, doing the film. There's a new conversation with sound editor, re-recording mixer Larry Blake, and composer Cliff Martinez. Uh, there's a deleted one deleted scene, which is... Not really essential, but there's a commentary by Soderbergh on, on, on it as well. There's a new documentary, uh, called Generators Noise Reduction and Multi-Track Audio Tape. This, this one with the extras gets really technical with the sound editor re-recording mixture, Larry Blake, talking about the extra work they had to do to remove or minimize, uh, the no, like stuff, background noise that were present on the original edit, things they did to fix it up. Basically, for re-release. Um, there's audio commentary that's archival with Soderbergh and uh, playwright Neil Labute. that was recorded in 1998 that was in the first Blu-ray release uh, that came out of this movie. There's a note on the picture and sound restorations, and then there's a 46-page illustrated booklet with an essay by critic Amy Taubin and excerpts from Steven Soderbergh's diaries that he was writing during it, the film production. That's what I was going to call out. The diary is super cool because... In it, there's a part where he talks about trying to get the actresses involved, and the struggle was he couldn't promise there wouldn't be nudity. And he was talking about going back and forth with him and going, look, I don't want there to be, but I can't guarantee there won't. Which, what blows me away about that is that just how how in the moment this movie was, despite how powerful it is. Like, like he really didn't know going into this what he was going to shoot. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was one of those sort of happy accident type of movies. Yeah. All right, so continuing to talk about films that have at least something to do with sex, but no actual sex, we've got I Feel Pretty, this being a new release uh, starring vehicle for Amy Schumer. 
I am still consistently surprised for somebody who writes as much great material as she's done on her show and in her stand-up that she never writes any of her own movies. And I think that's part of the problem with her becoming a film star has been that she is letting other people do that work for her. And it feels like, no, you need to have your voice in this thing. And I feel like this definitely nothing in here to me. It felt like people who were fans of her work who didn't understand how to write it, writing a, a movie that's trying to make a bigger point, but kind of stumbles and falls on its face. And it, even some would argue in a very uh, anti-feminist way well, I was, so, to, to get there. I'm really conflicted on this because I, a big part of me finds so much of this movie offensive mm-hmm. for women. But as as a not woman, that's not my place. <laughs> so, like, I, I can't decide if this movie is empowering to women or if it's offensive. It depends because on which there's lots of really good stuff in there. There's, it does a good job of tackling the way women put themselves down and the way they feel about themselves in this, this toxic environment we've created around femalehood in modern America. But it also, the joke the entire time is look at this ugly woman acting like she's not. Right. And, that just felt wrong. So I, like uh, the be all end all is that the movie follows every single trope of this kind of film. You know the entire film ten minutes in, and as a movie geek, it annoyed the shit out of me. Having said that, though, I sat my wife down and she watched this with me because I knew I was going to be conflicted on this. Mm-hmm. And this movie spoke to her. Like, really? She resonated with it on so many levels, totally clicked with her. I had three other women pop up on my Facebook go, oh my God, I saw this movie. It was phenomenal. It was like really powerful to me. So this might be just a case of I'm the wrong audience for it, right. and that's okay. I've seen people review this coming from both ways and also coming from where you and I are, where I'm not sure if this is offensive or not. I think it's just ham-handedly built. I think, I get what you're trying to say. I don't think you did a good job yeah, saying like, it. Uh, I, I um, think that if you're a film geek, the the predictability of it is going to drive you crazy. Yeah, I think that if you're a woman who likes comedies and this is like you are in this vein of women who feel this way about yourself. I think this is really going to work for you. Amy Schumer plays Renee Bennett. She's a ordinary lady. She works for in a, uh, with one other guy in like a closet basically for a major, uh, uh, fashion company doing just computer work. And she doesn't want that. She wants to go. She wants to be, she wants to be one of the beautiful people. She admires all these models yeah, she, and these designers in that world. And she thinks that she's very insecure about herself and her appearance. Uh, and one day she falls down and over, you know, she hurts herself. I'm not going to get into the, the details of it and comes out of it. Uh, also associated with her making a wish in a fountain that believing that she is now, she is transformed into a goddess, that she is just super hot and, like, it's just ridiculous how hot she is. She has not changed. And the running joke is everyone else can see that she has not physically changed, but there's lots of, like, phrasing things where yeah. people are saying things and you could, she says something and people take, oh, she must mean something else. Well, or her friends who are just think she's kind of gone off the deep end, her two best friends, one of which is uh, was from Freaks and Geeks. Uh, and 
but because of her force of will and her force of I'm awesome, she actually ends up talking her way into working for like becoming first the secretary for this fashion company, like up front and center, but then eventually becoming a major advisor for them on a new line of products for the everyday woman that they're coming out with, with Michelle Williams, which I don't know what she was doing here, slumming. I didn't um, even realize it was her till halfway through the right. movie. Well, she was had so much makeup on, we usually don't see her like that. And, and her voice is so yeah. different. She was playing kind of like a weird weird bubbly high voice but yeah she's like the the boss of the company uh her mother is uh or grandmother is lauren hutton who is there who's kind of the boss's boss if you will um and strangely throughout this movie you kept the one thing they did that was different from what you would expect like point by point a movie like this is they never make Michelle Williams or uh, Lauren Hutton into a bad guy. Yeah. There are no bad guys in this movie no. except for arguably Amy Schumer's character herself. And that's the part that got to me. Like they go through that point where inevitably she ends up being kind of a dick to her friends mm. and to the people who care for her. Right. And that's the part I wish they had cut out of the movie. Right. Because if you'd cut that out, like her going through the corporate ladder that she goes through, that was kind of interesting. And Amy Schumer is charming enough that all the scenes where it starts with us laughing at at a Amy Schumer being this supermodel that she's acting like. Well, uh, I mean that's the part. But that uh, like she ends up making those work because. It ends up being about a normal to attractive girl acting just super confident. And everybody legitimately likes her because she's super confident by the right. end. So those scenes mostly I mean, work. It's it's mainly troublesome because of that idea that, like, oh, the running joke is, look how funny it is that the fat girl it, yeah. they, doesn't know she's fat. And it's like, yeah, that's the part where I'm like, I can't get having trouble getting past well, that. And, and not so like, being like, like, there's a scene at a, a wet t-shirt contest that she joins that's, like, part of it feels like it should be offensive, but then the the whole closing of that is the guy walking over me like, dude, she's the best girl here. She's awesome. Hey, I will say, I love Rory, like, Rory Scovel plays a love interest here who at first is just so baffled by her because yeah. she's just like the most direct, like, oh, you're coming with me. Like, you know, I mean, she is in charge. And he's just, he really quickly is like, yeah, I, she's, this is not something I thought was going to happen, but here we are and I like it. It's, it's good. And he, he's quite a funny character. Um, I think they didn't do much with the two best friends, A.D. Bryant and Busy Phillips. It felt like there was better opportunities for two talented actresses like I, that. But they're just window dressing in here. I, I think that's the worst storyline in the whole movie mm-hmm. is her and her friends. Oh, that and the, there's a thing where the, Tom Hopper, who's a very handsome actor, plays like the – you know, the the guy in the fashion family who's very rich and successful, who's immediately also kind of taken by her strong will. And I thought that there was going to be something more interesting there. I felt like it was just a double underline. Look how how much hot dick you can score if you're super confident no matter what you look like. Well, it's and I'm the, like, okay, it, maybe, but it was just, it felt like it was one level too much and it was add an extra level of drama. Will she hook up with him and, and uh, betray the guy who actually cares about her? See, that's the thing. It, he was a plot machination. He was yeah. in there solely so that he can motivate her into questioning her life. Yeah. And, well, and, yeah. I think we both came down on, like, ultimately, whether or not you find this offensive or empowering, at least to us, it wasn't that funny. Yeah. It, it 
It, it was too it's, predictable. It stumbles over so many t- typical Hollywood machinations in this sort of thing. I mean, it really is very by the numbers, with the one exception of, like I said, the surprise that the people who in this type of movie normally would turn out to be the villains are, in fact, pretty decent people. And I think if this is the kind of movie that works for you, if you're one of those people like my wife and her friends who would appeal to, it's working in spite of the story, not because of it. It could have been so much better. There's about nine minutes of deleted scenes. There's a five and a half minute gag reel. And there's a f- less than a minute thing of interviewing the cast and crew on what makes them feel pretty. Yeah. I, I clicked on that thinking it was some kind of a special feature. And it's not even an EPK. Yeah. It's really just a half a trailer. Yeah. That's about it. Um, so our next one, getting a little more serious, but not that much serious, is a German film called Bye Bye Germany. Um, one of those films that markets itself as a comedy, and certainly there are some moments that are more directly comedic, but man, when the Germans do comedy, a lot of the time you're just like, do you guys know what comedy is? Well, yeah, it's <laughs> literally marketed as... Like the German Ocean Eleven, yeah, which which is so utterly no, and totally in no way, shape, or form is an Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> uh, director Sam Gabarski uh, directed this Holocaust survival dramedy. Uh, <laughs> it's basically a, a group of guys who did, in fact, survive the Holocaust. It's after World War II. The Germans have been largely pushed out. Or there's still a lot of suspicion around, especially with who might have been collaborators with the Germ- with the Nazis. Um, and it deals with uh, more. Uh, what's his name? More Moritz Blight. Oh boy, Bleeb True, I think is how you say his name. A lot of people recognize him from Run Lola Run. He was the guy from Run Lola Run, which is where I first knew him. But he's also been in a lot of other really good movies, including (laughs) The Grey Ghost and Speed Racer. Uh, He was uh, in Das Experiment. He played the main character in that. Um, Really great actor. And in fact, he is, there's a reason why he anchors this thing, because he's terrific in it. And part of his thing is you really don't know whether or not this guy is a collaborator or not, as the running sort of bookmarks throughout it is him being interviewed by this beautiful uh, American um, uh, agent who's over there. Basically, their job is to talk to people who are suspected collaborators, well, and he is suspected, played by Angie Trow, and he's telling her this story, which I'm not sure why it takes several appointments to get through, but, you know, <laughs> apparently they talk for five minutes and that's all she has time for per day. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the little, like, like half a conversation each day and then he'll leave. But it's a, which, based on, a, I guess, an urban legend, I think? Like, Because uh, I, I hear, I don't think it's true, but I know that it's a story that was well, known before of the, 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 the guy who... The true who's, story captured at the beginning says, the events in this story is true, and where it isn't... Well, it's mostly true. <laughs> it's the idea is the guy was in the camp and he, a German commandant forced him to tell a joke and they were like, wow, that was actually really good. And then they were like, we like you, you'll be our pet Jew. And then he basically was, at least according to his story, sent to, was like, we need somebody to teach Hitler how to tell jokes, which is an uncomfortable scenario to be in for okay. someone in so, Auschwitz. <laughs> this is one of those movies that's really to be not about the plot uh, at all. It's an entirely character-based uh, dramedy. Mm-hmm. So it, it describes it as this group of Jews post-World War II get into war profiteering. Uh, basically, they're selling linens to the Germans. Right. And so surviving so German families. That's part of the movie. And the other part of the movie is this interview process where 
basically somebody has fingered him as a collaborator right. and he can't get his business license to start a business and is being told like, yeah, we think you collaborated with the Nazis and you may be going to jail or being put to death. And so that's kind of what all these interviews are about. But again, it, it's really more about this group of, I want to say six guys Something who like that, yeah. all of them, but one were in the concentration camps and the one who wasn't had his own personal hell he had to go through and they're dealing with what that does to you. And they're trying to work and trying to find, build a life while also occasionally having this moment where you, one of them hears a song that they played over the executions and breaks down. Or one of them sees somebody who he suspects may have been a Nazi general who uh, killed a bunch of his family. And so, like... It took me a while to figure out what this was because I went into it expecting Ocean's Eleven and this madcap comedy. And it wasn't until the half, the actual, the song part where I realized that that's what the story was, was these men dealing with a trauma. But that being said, it's not dealt with all that well. It's kind of dances around ever having anything really to say about it. I mean, even the movie at the end of it, just kind of shrugs its shoulders where it's like the premise was like 4,000 Holocaust survivors apparently chose to stay in Germany after the war, which you're like, why the fuck would you do that? Yeah. Like, and even the, these guys are putting together money to get out. That's the whole plan. Like their savings, they're going to go to America. And there's one of the characters who at the end is like, who just chose not to go. And it's like, why didn't he go? And he's like, I don't know. Yeah, I will admit, <laughs> I wanted to know why he didn't. Yeah, but, but aside from that, I think it worked more for me than it did for you because, like, I saw it as this slice of life comedy. So, like, I know that ultimately it doesn't have some grand statement on it, but I really enjoyed getting a look into the lives of these men because, quite frankly, coming from an American point of view, my only exposure to Holocaust is. You know, something like The Pianist or sure. Schindler's whatever movies you just seen. fucking the most bleak, bleak that ever bleaked in the entire bleak world. <laughs> and so it was nice to get a counterpoint to that to see that these men were affected by it, but it didn't destroy them. And they were able to build something after that. So, like, it, it ended up being very helpful for me. I really enjoyed this. Okay. Uh, but I, I get where you're coming from, though, because, I, yeah, it was just kind of stuff happened. Yeah, I, I didn't dislike it. I just didn't really, I think it accomplished what it set out to do either. Yeah. It was a mixed bag. Uh, is is the best thing I can think of to say. Uh, next up, you didn't see this one, but that's because you really didn't care for the last release of Lego DC <laughs> Comics Superheroes The Flash. So this time, I'm covering Lego DC Comics Superheroes Aquaman Rage of Atlantis. That yes, even DC itself makes fun of how lame Aquaman is sometimes. And this is one of those examples where it's all the little Lego figures uh, and Aquaman it's sort of focusing on. It's also kind of a Green Lantern movie at the same time because 
because the bad guy is Atrocitus, the, the head of the Red Lanterns. Yeah, is he and the it's guy got, who vomits blood? Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He's the Rage Lantern, and it's got the ki- the kitty right because one of the Red Lanterns is a cat. I was like, like, oh, it's a mean cat. Um, And then one of the other primary characters that has an arc in here at all is uh, uh, Jessica Cruz, who is one of the newest Green Lanterns. And if you ask me, not a very interesting (laughs) character in the I tried reading her book, Green Lanterns. It's her and another guy. And they both have their own neuroses. You're like, why would the Will Lantern pick someone whose whole major issue is they're constantly scared to do anything? Yeah, I, I'm just that makes no sense to me. I understand that they're like, oh, we way we, we could uh we could like work with this to tell interesting drama with her growing as a person. It's like no, but the ring would never pick that person. And the Wait, hold on, I have to ask her. How many human Green Lanterns are there now? Yeah, oh, unusually large amount. But I think they've actually made the argument one of the reasons they have more than a lot of places is because for whatever reason, Earth is kind of a nexus of realities and stuff. Earth is where a lot of shit gets started. So, okay. like, they're like, all right, so maybe we should put a few more cops on that street. We're, we're, we're basically the, the, uh, the, you know, the bad part of town in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are the wrong side of the tracks. So, but, yeah, awkward. Man has to deal with Atrocitus has taken over, has teamed up with uh, Ocean Master, man, what an unfortunate name, who's Aquaman's brother, and uh, to take over Atlantis, which Aquaman is still feeling mixed about because he's like, well, I'm not really sure I should be king because I'm half human. Uh, and he teams up with the whole Justice League and they got a yada yada. They have Wonder Woman and Mara and Superman and Cyborg and Batgirl and Robin. And Lobo? Lobo is like a guy at first he's a villain and then he ends up because he's a mercenary. Yeah. He's like, well, that job's done. Now I'll help you guys out and fight against the guy who paid me. Uh, so he's like villain, then hero. Yeah, I know. The first time we see Lobo in a thing is, is going to be fucking Lego. What the hell is that? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's goofy. I actually kind of enjoyed the Flash one. I'll be honest. I thought this one was pretty lame. I didn't get a single so much as chuckle out of this. Um, it's tolerable because, like I said, I like seeing minor characters like Lobo and stuff, but like, well, I guess it depends you know on what, who you I ask. would like to see an Aquaman story where Ocean Master and Black Manta are not the villain. Mm-hmm. Because they're like the Lex Luthor for Superman. Yeah. I don't think it's ever been done without them. I actually don't know any other Aquaman villains. I used though. to. I can't remember. I mean, I, there was somebody knew they were dealing with relatively recently, and because I was ke- keeping up with since Rebirth, but then I fell behind. Anyway, upshot is this is thoroughly mediocre. It does come though with a little Lego figure of Jessica Cruz Green Lantern. So if you're collecting Ooh. little Lego figures, you get a free one with it. But you know, this is strictly for the kids. Uh, definitely not one with a lot of crossover appeal, even for adults who are really, really into DC comics. So I honestly say you can kind of skip this one. And then we have the next film that, <laughs> that I suspect traumatized more than a few people out there who watched this film, The Night of the Virgin, so. that apparently stars a human uh, personification of a rat. <laughs> this guy is the most rodent-like face of anyone I have ever seen. So I have to tell everyone, when you handed me this movie... You gave me the stack, and you were going through and telling me about the movies, and you showed me this one, and, went, and this one. Don't watch this one with anyone else in the room. Yes. At all. And so I had to go to Santa Barbara for my work, and I took, of course, this one and one other one, and watched this in the airport in Phoenix, and... Not oh my god, did I damn near clear the gate. <laughs> Just, like... At least three couples came in, sat next to me, looked over, and went, fuck that, 
and got up and left. So this is a foreign, I want to say it was Spanish, I think? Spanish. Yeah. Um, like horror film that, it, for the first half of it, I was like, so is this more of a kind of like, like horror, like more of a, it felt more of an indie comedy with horror oh, overtones. I, I, I figured half. out what it was for me. It felt like one of those Spanish filmmakers who makes those great ghost films decided to make an American Pie film hmm. because it's half just gross out sex jokes and vulgarity and then half really fucked up horror. Yeah, really fucked up. Really fucked up horror. Uh, Javier Bardalo plays a nerdy virgin, Nico, who it's New Year's Eve. He just wants to get laid. He's at a party. No one wants anything to do with him because, like I said, the dude looks like a rat. I don't know what to tell you. It's his fa- it's, a, it's almost like they did makeup, but that's what he actually looks like. He's rodent-like. <laughs> um, and this older woman basically says, hey, come with me. Go back to my house. We'll hook up. And he's like, okay. Which, I'm in. Um, you know, and we mean he's like a like he looks like he's probably seventeen. She's and, probably in her mid forties, and she's pretty. And like yeah. I, I can see myself in his place going home with her. But I will admit that I immediately had a suspension of this suspension of disbelief issue when they arrived at her apartment. Yeah, and there's like rotten food hanging around. Like, and I was cockroaches never everywhere. Enough to sit. I was and, just like, you know what? Uh, there is a line of how far I will go for sex, even at that age. And that apartment crossed it the moment he walked in. Oh, yeah. I was like, you leave. It's so, you've never seen a place that was this disgusting. And you're like, there's no, I don't care how horny you are. You would not have, you no. were like, something's wrong here. No. So your your yeah. radar would go bing, bang, bang. Something has gone to- terribly wrong in this scenario. And sure enough, she is a, one of the last surviving members of a religious cult. And she wants him for some sort of ritual, which is not as obvious as you might think it is. It is not. Um, I was, you know what? I was legitimately surprised yeah, where it went. I was too. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of beating around the bush, not literally, um, as he's awkwardly trying to make conversation and she's not really making this easy, which is one of the things I don't understand. It's like, yeah, she's, what is, you're kind of like making this take too long for reasons that make no sense and just being and, difficult. And that, that ended up being my biggest issue with it is I felt like you could have cut half of this movie out. I felt like, like it would have been an entertaining short film. Yeah. I would have, this would have made a great like 20 to 30 minute short instead of an hour and a half movie. Hour and 45 minutes, I think. It's too long. There's a lot of, like, even when it's just a comedy as such, it's mainly super gross jokes, like, like tasting period blood and a lot of anti femininity in here. Like, oh, isn't it gross? She has a vagina. You know, I mean, there's a lot of like, well, and it, like, there's it, a scene where she shoves his cell phone up her pussy and you're like, you're sp- it's supposed to be gross. You're like, why is that? I mean, it's weird. Well, but- and the movie does the thing where every single character he meets who isn't her is a horrible human being yeah. who just completely disregards his screams and cries for help. And, and the- whenever I see that in a movie... I immediately don't buy it. Including the neighbors who are presented in a very homophobic sort of way as very yeah. animalistic, like, like, like cliches of like, like, yeah. uh, like asshole gay people. You're like, what is happening here with these guys? No it one would behave that way. It was weird. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't click at all with like reality in this thing. And 
I started, I peaked up a bit when it actually turned into a horror movie because it has some interest, it makes some interesting choices, which is to say very nauseating ones at points. And some of the gore, despite being more over the top than even I wanted to see, was well done. Yeah. You know, but even so, by the end of this, I was like, God damn, I can't believe I sat through that entire movie. That was kind of a grueling I have trial. to admit, I... I did a couple of uh, um, thirty-second fast forwards towards the end. Yeah, well, it I, got to be too much for me. Yeah, fair enough, fair yeah. enough. But I, I, I don't think I can re- recommend this one. I think Night of the Virgin kind of falls flat. This, yeah, this movie's the ne- thing, like there's not enough gore for it to appeal to gore people because it's not that kind of a film, and it takes forever to get to it. And, too. And the gross-out comedy isn't good enough for gross-out comedy levels. No, it really isn't. I, I, Night of the Virgin, if it was a, a dude on New Year's, a high school guy on New Year's Eve, it was never going to get laid. Uh, next up is, even though I'm not going to go so far as called Doom Asylum a good movie, it was a breath of fresh air after Night of the Virgin, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> because here is a intentionally... Like a horror comedy film that's kind of playing its comedy by like, look how bad this is sort of yes. way, but done in the days before like your Sharknados and what have you. This is, uh, oh good Lord, what year was this thing? 1980 something. I think 87. Uh, 87, yes. And oh. Arrow is putting this thing out, which I was like, this is really not Arrow's typical sort of thing. This sort of like gore heavy g- goofball horror comedy. But I, I'll be goddamned if I didn't actually catch myself enjoying myself with no matter how fucking hokey this whole thing is. I have to admit, super hokey. I, I was, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I feel like it also overstayed its welcome. Yeah. Like I rem- I actually started to message you at the beginning because I started this thinking it was a bad '80s horror film, and when the actors started to, and I put this in quotes, act. Right. I was like, I. This is so... The acting is so bad. I feel like it's intentionally bad, but I couldn't quite tell. Like, is this just really shitty, or is this a parody? And it's definitely intentionally bad. It's cartoonishly bad, uh, in a very intentional way that doesn't all work, but there's a way it sort of builds up after a while that you're just kind of getting chuckles out of it because it's just so absurd. The way they're setting up the killer to have one-liners like Freddy or something the whole time, and it's just like, he's such an absurd killer. The premise, such as it is, we see a guy and his fiancée, they get in a car wreck in the very beginning. He appears not totally mutilated, but... but uh, and not even really dying. No, he's just hurt. Yeah, just hurt, but clearly not fatally. Yet next scene, he's being autopsied. And you're like, wait, why is all his skin missing now? Why is he all like fucked up? When did that happen? Did he get hit by another car? But uh, he apparently is not actually dead. And he kills the autopsy attendants. And there's something about uh, 10 years later, the the place where he was held has now been abandoned, which yeah, like, was an asylum. Why was it, he in an asylum? And that was the thing that was really weird for me too, because it's not that somebody wronged him. Like, no, he's just a dick. He, he <laughs> wasn't watching where he was going yeah. and got in a car. Wreck. He has no reason to be a psycho killer. Yeah, it was just like, fuck it. He I wasn't, just guess I'll kill people. He wasn't resurrected by evil science or Satan or anything that would give him some sort of like, oh, his brain's gone bad. No, he's just like, hey, I want to tell a bunch of funny jokes while I like kill people very graphically and 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 in not efficient ways. Yeah, and like. <laughs> And the main character is the daughter yeah. of his, I, I put fiance, this in quotes, yeah. fiance. He asked her to marry him Same like five stuff. seconds into the movie, um, who 
Patty Patty Mullen, who, uh, who played was best in, known I probably for one other movie. Well, she was uh, the lead in the really well we're seeing Frankenhooker, which yeah. is super funny as hell. Um, she was also uh, a pet of the year in 1988 for Penthouse Magazine. Just saying, because <laughs> uh, she is a good looking lady. And once again, this is another one of these weird horror films. I think we think we did one of these a few weeks ago, where part of the selling point was like, oh, it was the pet of the year who is one of the characters who never gets naked in the film, well, and you're like, what is the? Why would you? Uh huh. Every all the women. Walk around in swimsuits, yeah. but there's only one nude scene in the entire movie, which yeah. is also so random and it's out so of place random. that it's like, you can't wait, what? What? Because uh, this group of people, including Kristen Davis, her first film, that's Kristen Davis from Sex in the City, this was her first film performance. Was what, oh, Did you not realize who that's a was? I spent the entire movie going... Who the hell is that? Yeah. I know her. But um, I mean, a lot of actresses who get a lot bigger later have uh, not the best starts in horror. Yes, you know. I mean, thinking, looking at you, Jennifer Aniston, um, and Renee Zellweger. So it's them. They're picnicking in an abandoned asylum. Why? I don't know. But there's also a punk, uh, all female punk band there that's practicing that are very punk. They're like, "Fuck you, buddy." Who, who also. Uh, have the honor of being the only time I've ever watched a movie where there's a band playing where they were so bad that I turned the volume down. Yeah, they were really awful. <laughs> um, but as it goes along, like I said, it's just like one at a time, these people being killed off by this guy who has to do it all with a one-liner and just people being so stupid that it would only sell when the film is on the surface saying, we know this is stupid. Yeah. Like, and it does kind of sell. At the end of this, this isn't like a major classic of horror comedy or anything. It's not even really a minor classic, but it's an interesting curiosity that is quite watchable. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was yeah. enjoyable. And like I said, he's surprisingly decent gore at points. At other points, not so much. And I will say that it looked amazing. Oh, oh my God, the transfer is phenomenal. It, it really did. Uh, there are, is a new interview with uh, Ruth Collins, who played the role of Tina. There is a inter new interview with the director of photography, Larry Ravine. There is a new interview with the makeup effects creator, Vincent J. Gostini. There's archival interviews for about 11 minutes with the director, production manager, and executive producer. And then there's a stills gallery, and there's two audio commentaries, one with the screenwriter. Can you believe somebody actually wrote this? Um, and one with something called The Hysteria Continues. I guess it's a podcast or something that's into these things. I, I don't know. I didn't even know that was there. <laughs> but this is a Arrow uh, release for horror and gore hounds that I would say is definitely like it moves by super fast. It's it's a piece of fluff, but it's pretty fun bit of like like ob obscure eighties minor you know gem worth checking. This out. is the kind of movie that you should put on with your buddies and drink a bunch of beer, get some pizza, and laugh and joke your way through the movie. This is that movie. Uh, you know what isn't that movie? A movie I didn't make you see. I was horrified just looking at this thing, going, "Oh boy, here we go!" But I had to do it. I had to watch this movie that just came out called Sunset Society. I'll tell you why. Because it was the last thing that uh, Lemmy from Motorhead did. And he was the last year of his life. Because he died real suddenly. Like, he didn't even know he had cancer until it was on top of him. He died super fast. And he was filming this. And they were nowhere near done filming this silly little vampire film. And so what do you do when you've got a, all this footage with a big star like Lemmy? And then he dies and it's a big deal. Well, you go and you figure out a way to edit the footage together and film new footage to try and make sense of the story. Ugh. And said sense of the story is... It's a bunch of vampires. Some vampires break into the house with these two other vampires. 
and uh, are holding them hostage and torturing them, trying to get them to admit what did they do with the movie. And you're like, what is the movie? Well, apparently somebody took footage or put together a movie using real footage of real vampires that's dangerous, including lots of footage of Ace, who is Lemmy, who's king of all vampires. He's like the oldest among them all, right? And you're like, wait, how is this a movie about that? And later on, there's like a line of like, it's like, I put hidden cameras everywhere. And you're like, yes, of course you did. But most of this, only maybe 10 minutes of 15 minutes of this is like, you can tell because just the filming style is completely different. Like the stock and everything is completely different. Look, the, how much was filmed after the fact to try and make this come together. The story is so just barely a story. It's following all these various vampires around, and some of them aren't very good at being vampires. Like, there's one dude who accidentally turns a girl. He's like, oops! Uh, sorry, my bad. Uh, 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 and there's like a guy who's like decided he doesn't want to be a vampire anymore, so he goes into the body of a human and then hates it, uh, which makes no sense. There's some. Actual stuff in here, I admit, I have never seen in a vampire movie, which I'll tell you this right now. I can't believe nobody ever did this before. I took a demented mind to even think it up. A vampire is having sex with, like, uh, two hotties, and he turns himself to mist form and enters her through her vagina and starts pleasing her from the inside of the mist. <laughs> and then assumes his entire form while inside of her and climbs out of her, explodes out of her body. And you're like, okay, never seen that before. That's a new one. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this overall is not, that's the only really gory thing here. I mean, for and what gore there is, is not very well done at all. I mean, the appeal to this thing is just how fucking goofy it is with and Lemmy who God bless him was a great musician was never much of an actor but he's trying uh, and that's not all there's also a couple other um, recognizable folks in this movie including uh, Ron Jeremy plays one of the vampires who actually has some genuinely funny moments in this movie like I laughed out loud with some of the Ron Jeremy dialogue you know this because and I can't believe I'm going to say this Ron Jeremy is actually kind of a talented dude. I mean, we know what his real talent is. Yeah. But, you know. Uh, um, but there's also, like, one of the guys from L.A. Guns is in this. And then, uh, what's his name? Dizzy from um, uh, Guns N' Roses is it, plays one of the main characters in this. And there's a bunch of other people you're like, oh, I recognize them. Steve-O has a cameo as a guy who's <sighs> really excited to be bit by a vampire. And the vampire's like, I can't do it when he wants me to. <laughs> it's just so dumb. And not worth watching at all, but some of you guys are going to watch it anyway just because of the rock crossover and just how absurd it is. It could have been a lot worse. It really could have been so much worse, considering that this was, like, assembled very hastily. And uncertain origins, either. Apparently, there's, like, multiple people credited as directed parts of it. It's not very clear how this even got started in the first place. And the footage that is the bulk of the film is really a shot on shitty fucking film style. It looks terrible. Um, I, I don't know. It's one of those, well, hope we can get a dollar out of it, but well, there's, they're selling it on, if you get it on Blu-ray, it actually comes with a, a record of the soundtrack. Um, well, thank you for thinking of me and not giving it up. And there's, uh, uh, there's also a very short thing that's, they apparently put up a statue of Lemmy at the Rainbow Bar and Grill in LA, which was his favorite bar to hang out at. So there's like a, it was like the official unveiling of the Lemmy statue, which I actually thought was kind of a cool thing to do. I didn't know about that. Um, but yeah, there's even lots of weird animated points where it was clear, you know, it was like scene missing. 
And it was like, okay, well, we'll just do an animated sequence here. I don't know, man. It's a mess, but it might be a mess that some of you would be entertained by. Let's move on to The Case of the Scorpion's Tail. This being a 1971 Italian, Italian giallo film um, released, of course, by Arrow. Because nowadays, if I say Italian giallo film on the show, you should know it's probably an Arrow release. Usually yeah. is. Or Spaghetti Western or Yakuza film. Um I was actually surprised how much I did, in fact, enjoy this movie. I was, too. I enjoyed it for the most part. I was, uh, I spent the first third of it kind of shocked that the main character was a woman doing some investigating, too. Mm-hmm. But then that kind of stops. Yeah. And, like, up until the who the killer is, is happens... I was really into this. Well, the the movie pulls a psycho in that it makes you think one character is going to be the main character, and then 20, 30 minutes in, she gets killed, and you're like, oh. And so then they they kind of make this minor character, journalist character, gets elevated up to star. In in (laughs) a surprisingly graphic and effective murder, too. Actually, uh, this was the other movie I watched in the airport with Night of the Virgin, and that scene drove away a lady and her small child. Give you an ugly look. (laughs) Uh, It's a a widow, inherits a fortune, her husband dies in a uh, freakish check crash. However, um, she's... Someone is 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 killing people, clearly, around her, and it looks like her life is being threatened, and she's trying to escape, and an insurance investigator who's looking into, in fact, the actual original jet crash is, is trying to figure out who the killer is. He's got a love interest with the, the journalist, and they team up to figure out who is murdering anyone who had any connection to the widow and why. And... Somehow it has something to do with the gold cufflink of, in fact, a scorpion. Um, this is a movie there's by the end, I was like, I'm pretty sure if I was to go back through this movie, that the solution would make no sense. Yeah. Like, I was like, like there's no way that that would work. But it's, it's the only weak point because if the, if the who the killer was worked better, it would have made that third act be a lot less do sex machina. Yeah. And it, it would have made this go from an okay giallo film to a damn fine one. Well, part of it is that it's actually pretty well filmed. Yeah. It actually has pretty good special effects. It's got a great score. Like, where you're like, wow, I actually really like the music in this thing. A lot of Italian giallos, even if they're terrible, sometimes have a great score. And reasonably good performances. Uh, George Hilton, who plays... I would say arguably the primary character in this thing by the time all said and done, uh, who is, uh, the journalist, or no, I'm sorry, the uh, insurance, insurance investigator, investigator is one of those guys. This was an offshoot for him. It was not the normal thing he did. He was known for doing westerns. He was like, was in a bunch of big, uh, uh, spaghetti westerns eventually played Sartana in the last Thank film. You. I was going to say, wasn't he Sartana, Sartana? Trade your guns for a coffin. Um, but yeah, it, like he slowly, this is him trying to make his move over to like Pulitz, Eye and, and, uh, Giallo films as the spaghetti western craze was starting to die out. Um, I, I think that this is one of those ones that moves quickly, despite how absurd it is. The kills come very fast. Um, it has the tropes of Giallo, certainly that are there that you'll recognize, but at the same time, it goes some directions I didn't expect to. I think this one's really worth watching. I agree. It's worthwhile. Like, just weekend ending aside, it's a pretty darn good film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. He also, the same director, did The Visitor and Torso. 
Um, the suspicious death of a minor, uh, quite a few actually. I mean, he did like a lot of, Jesus Christ, he did a lot of movies, but like a couple, like I said, recognizable ones to Americans. And this era release comes with a commentary track, uh, uh, under the Sign of the Scorpion, a new interview with the star George Hilton, um, who's talking about, in fact, him trying to reboot his career with this movie. A 47-minute interview with the director, uh, who says he was very influenced by Z, which won Best Foreign Language Film from 1969, which I did see at some point, but I'll be damned if I can remember a damn thing about it. Uh, Jet Set Giallo, which is a uh, critic and academic, Mikhail J. Coven, who uh, talks about the movie. Uh, the Case of the Screenwriter Autour, which is a visual essay focusing on the screenwriter. Uh, and then Image Gallery, theatrical trailer and all. But yeah, this is a, uh, it's, for Giallo fans, this is a nice little gem worth seeking out. Uh, and then we move on to another Arrow, one of those movies, I, I watched this movie, The Navigator of Medieval Odyssey, when I was like 18 or 19, and I was like, I got it mixed up with Flight of the Navigator, because everyone was telling me, <laughs> oh, dude, you should see Flight of the Navigator. I was like, cool. And I think I picked this up instead, and I was like, what the fuck is this? And I remember being that, thinking in my head, oh, this is the most boring fucking sci-fi film I have ever seen. So all these years later, now expecting a much more slower-paced film, I see this, and it's still not really my thing, to be perfectly honest, but people love the shit out of this I movie. I kind of loved it. A lot of people do. It's by uh, um, uh, Australian, New Zealand... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, I think he's New... Yeah, he's New Zealand director Vincent Ward, who did a lot of different movies, although in America he's probably best known for What Dreams May Come, which is a movie at the time was kind of critically reviled, but it's always been a favorite of mine. Yeah. Um, and this is a very slowly paced like very beautifully shot movie with a bunch of people during the black death in 14th century England who are, who have a kid with them who end up going through like digging through a mountain and coming out the other side into modern day. Uh, I think it's actually supposed to be Australia where they are. It's New Zealand. Is it New Zealand? It's modern day, i.e. 84, 85. Right. right. In the, in the middle of the city and dealing with like trying to figure out what's going on. And they're, they're, Quest, which is to take to basically forge a crucifix and put it on top of the the, the church in the city, so that they hope will end the plague. I'm not quite sure how they came to that conclusion, but well, because it's they were a bunch of Catholics in the 1300s, right? Who thought that if you came out the other side of the world, you might fall off of it. They didn't know a lot. No, that and, is true. And like, so I like I said, I ended up really loving this movie. It. It's a plot that we've seen done to death, but every time I've ever seen this movie, it's a straight comedy. And there's always some analog in New York, because that's where it always is in American movies, who finds them and tries to shepherd them through our daily life. And this is that movie, but there is no analog. So they come out into modern-day New Zealand, have no idea what the fuck is going on. They're being led by a nine-year-old who's having visions. Right. And, and that's where the, this is where the artiness comes in. Anything that happens kind of in their real world is in black and white. And then anytime he's in the visions and they get into the modern world, they film it in color, which it, so it, it very much has this very slow pace. Like you're talking about, this is not a fast movie. It is not a comedy. It is a slow methodical, arty drama 
But it really, like, I got into it. I okay. totally liked seeing these characters try to figure it out. And I, I've cut the terms of the fact that I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in God. I love films about God, and I love films about people who do believe. Okay. And so I liked the idea that here's a bunch of guys from 13th, the, the 14th century England in modern day New Zealand on a quest from God that they have come up with entirely on their own to stop the black death from happening. Like, I love that idea. And I don't know. It it worked for me every bit of the way. The only thing that didn't quite work is the ending. It kind of gets a little downbeat at the end and it, I'm more okay with it. If you, take a step back and view this as more of a metaphorical film than something that's a normal plot based story mm-hmm. because it does make sense within the context of the story they've told. It's an earned ending, but it's still it's a rough earned ending. It really is, although it's kind of noble sacrifice type of thing. Yeah, know? exactly. But yeah, I think part of it is just that this moves so slowly for me. And also I although you know, uh, and consider myself agnostic. There are films that discuss and deal with religion that I like, but a lot of the time that is something that turns that I, turns me off when I'm like, I just don't have empathy for characters when that's their sole motivation on some level. And, and you have to have that for this because yeah. there is no question about it. It's a bunch of guys who think that if they go take this cross and put it on a church, God will make the Black Death skip their village. Mm. Like, it is a pure vision quest religious journey for them. And if you can't get behind that, it's not the movie for you. I will say it is indeed beautifully shot. Vincent Ward has gotten a lot of credit throughout his career for being just a guy who knows how to shoot a movie. And and it's really low-key, too. Oh, it's extremely low-key. Like, just like... Super downplayed and very chill. <laughs> um, but I'm the one in the minority. This film is generally regarded as kind of a classic, at least in art film circles. Uh, so, I mean, it was submitted for the Palme d'Or, did not win at Cannes. But uh, this Arrow release has nine-minute interview with um, Nick Roddick, who is basically sort of the, the leading authority on Vincent Ward films discussing the film. Uh, there's an archival television piece that's 30 minutes long focusing on him uh, from 1989, and then a trailer and an insert booklet. Not a lot here. Um, I actually kind of wonder why, with so little that they had to put together, even though Ward, he's not really actively working in film anymore, hasn't been for a while. He more or less retired from film, and is, I think he's working on sculptures or photography or something, but he's still around. I'm like, you know, the guy didn't want to talk about this movie, but I wonder why they didn't, this movie that actually came out like a month ago, also by him, Vigil felt like this should have been a second disc with this movie because Vigil is not that good of a film, but it has (laughs) merits and it's more interesting in light of, this being the same guy who directed that other film. And both of these were very early in his career. I, I, I think this may have even been his first feature film, uh, Vigil, that is. But uh, it was thought of very highly, at least in New Zealand, when it came out originally. It didn't get much play outside of there. Uh, but it was the first New Zealand film that was invited to play in the competitive section of the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, it's this little girl, Toss... 11 years old, she lives on a remote farm uh, <coughs> deep in the most rural country part of New Zealand with her father, mom, and grandfather. Uh, she sees her 
her dad's accidental death while she's out herding sheep. Uh, and then another guy shows up seemingly out of nowhere uh, and carries her father's body uh, back to the farm. And he sort of insinuates himself into the daily life of the farm, working for them and then seemingly starting a romantic relationship with the mother. And Toss is very not into this any of this happening. Um, she, in fact, there's insinuations that he may be an evil spirit even, but that never really comes to anything. It's more like the imaginations of a little girl than anything. But even so, she has a weird sort of creepy, like, connection with the guy as well as he's obviously a little, there's a, there's a pedophile in him just waiting for the opportunity to come out is what it feels like. Yeah. They go that way in a couple of, there's one scene in the movie that kind of hints at that. Yeah. It never pays off either way. Yeah. But I don't think anything in this movie ever paid off. Like, and so you kind of, this makes a lot of sense. This being the first film, because this feels like, this feels like a master filmmaker making an okay movie. Yeah. Because he doesn't a great job of making nothing happening be thoroughly engrossing scene to scene. I was hooked inside those scenes. Mm-hmm. But unlike Navigator, which I was really into the story of, this one really just kind of meandered along and nothing really occurred. Yeah. And so, like, I was always, I was always waiting for something to develop and ready. And I think if something had, I would have been totally into it. But yeah, nothing happens. It's just, it, this feels like mumble core back in the 80s. It you know? really, it's just really a bunch of navel gazing. Um, uh, the strong points to the young actress who plays the lead here, though, who's really good in this. Yeah. Uh, who I believe largely just fell out of acting after just a few more things, which is a shame because she obviously had real talent well, it, here. Like, I honestly thought everybody did a good job in the movie. All the actors do a good job. It's shot really well. It's just nothing happens. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you keep expecting that this is going to, like, oh, the guy shows up. Oh, something's wrong with him. Yeah. Oh, maybe he's evil. This is going to turn into something. And it never really does. No, it's just, oh, they're, they're just living their life. Yeah. So, anyway, this is on Arrow as well. Uh, there's another interview with that, that Vincent Ward expert, uh, Nick Roddick, on here. There is a archival piece for, for about 14 minutes that's from a New Zealand television show with footage of the film being shot. Uh, so behind the scenes, believe it or not. And there's a seven and a half minute NZ cinema, the past decade, which is an excerpt from a longer documentary that, uh, that with this, this is the segment that focuses on Ward and this particular film in particular. You know, the one good thing about these two, I mean, I really enjoyed Navigator, but I'm going to check out this director because while I really didn't like Vigil, there was enough there that I'm like, you know what? I bet you I would like this guy's other movies. Well, let's talk about our final film this this week. And of course, as always, I try and save one of the big ones for last. Although I certainly gave my full review uh, and our highly suspect review of this movie, Ready Player One. It is now out on Blu-ray. This is based on the novel by Ern- Ernie Klein, Austin's own Ernie Klein, if you will. Everyone's like, hey, who's that guy who's got the DeLorean with the uh, the Ghostbusters proton packs in the back? That's, that's Ernie, if you see that car around town. Um, co-written by the script co-written by Zach Penn. This is, as many people said, a welcome change from the things the book decidedly did wrong, but maybe not enough to 
completely save it. I, I am a more on the side, as opposed to our good friend Johnny Neal, who thinks that this film and everyone associated should be set on fire, apparently. Oh my god, uh, yes. Yeah, when he decides he hates something, he's got to post about it like 80 times. He was literally commenting on other things people were, were posting that had nothing to do with this movie at all. Like, by the way, Ready Player One oh, is garbage. Like, he, and I, he and I went back and forth for like three days on that one post. But I... Watched this again. I sat down. I was like, you know what? I do want to see this movie again. Because the first time I saw it, I was like, I liked it. I don't know ultimately how I felt about it as a movie. Because it's just, it's big. It's loud. It's eye candy. It's got really good CG. It's got cool action sequences. But what did I really think about it as a movie? And honestly, the second time I felt pretty much the same way. <laughs> I didn't get more or less. I enjoyed watching it. I think it's fun. I think Spielberg is really good at doing what he does. And I think he's the only guy who could have made a watchable film out of that book. So, the- like, I'll admit that I like the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't really care about the nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I, I like the future world that they created. And I like some of the considerations to geeks trying to improve themselves. And so, yeah, this was a really fun movie. Like, I I can't deny that. It's a fun, dumb action film that moves at a breakneck pace. If you haven't read the book, wait till after you see the movie. Because while the idea is there, they make a lot of changes that, as someone who's read the book, I really struggled with. The first time I saw it, but like, here's the problem that I ultimately end up having with this movie is I don't know who this is for. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't deny that it's entertaining, but the purpose of the movie feels like IP porn. Okay. You know, like, yeah, it's the Iron Giant. Yeah, it's Gundam. I mean, it's the yeah, ultimate, it's, it's both the book and the movie are the ultimate expression of that dopamine release you get when you recognize something. But like, I, it's just, it's nostalgia porn. Yeah, sure. thank you. Nostalgia porn's uh, better. And, but, but the I, thing I that mean, gets people, you though, people come down so hard on that. And I agree that that can be, if that's all you've got and nothing else, then I'm not impressed. But there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea. Of it. You are correct. Like, like uh, that's not my problem. So that's just that's what the movie is. It's fun action married with nostalgia porn. The problem I have is that eight out of ten times they get it sort of wrong. So like uh, they use Gundam in the movie but they prescribe this two-minute timer to it that has nothing to do with Gundam. They they use Mechagodzilla in the movie. Name it. They actually, oh my god, it's Mechagodzilla. And you know what? It's not fucking Mechagodzilla. Oh god, we're going down the math yeah, bank so, argument again here. Which, <laughs> here's my question, though. So, it's not going to please the Godzilla fans like me because it's not Mechagodzilla. To be fair, as I pointed and out, and if you're not a Mechagodzilla fan, it doesn't mean shit. As to I you. pointed out to Matt, this movie takes place like 40 years in the future. This very well could be a Mechagodzilla in a film we see between then and now. Except that they're so 80s intensive, it would be the 80s one. Yeah. It would be the classic Showa era one. Don't argue with me maybe, on that. Maybe the new Godzilla movie. It does beg the question, where are the references for other cool pop culture things like, that came out between so then that's and the now? Thing I, that's the issue I had is, and got to Johnny Neal's point, like the Iron Giant, it's in there, but... There's, it's nothing beyond, oh, look, it's the Iron Giant. And so, like, I feel like the nostalgic references 
don't really work, but I don't see why there are so many then if they get them slightly off. I mean, however, like you say, who is this movie for? I'll tell you who it's for. It's a, for people who really like video games, who are like, I could spend all day playing games. These are for people who bought that Mortal Kombat that had fucking Freddy and Jason in it because they were so excited. They got to play as Freddy and Jason. You know what I mean? It's for people like that. It's also for people who are like, genuinely excited about the idea of a VR world being this all-encompassing and this convincingly real. I fit both of those, but I'm less to a lesser extent the video game thing. I still play a lot of games, but like, yeah, if this was a world that you could do it, I would pretty much spend the bulk of my day living in this, in the Oasis. I'd be super excited. And then like the the whole idea of like Easter egg treasure hunts, you know, it's like, it's kind of that that adventure, the, the the possibility to be rich for all time and yet be noble about it. In that regard, though, like I wanted to see more of them. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to see more of the VR world besides the video game aspect. I wanted right. to see how the world was Where's wrapped into it. I, I guess I wanted more. Yeah. Than what he gave us. He gave us a popcorn film and I wanted some extra details so that I could feel like the world was a, uh, I knew how it worked. Like, I mean, honestly, go see it. It's fun. It's legitimately entertaining. It's just nothing more than a piece of fluff though. It's yeah, extremely it's just, I, well I can't made give it a wholesale recommendation because of that. It's extremely well made fluff that on, if you say to yourself, I'm not really a video game guy on any level, I, Guarantee you this movie is not for you. I guarantee it. If you're yeah. like, yeah, I don't really play games, you're not gonna like this movie. I will period. say this. Period. No matter what you say or think, the second quest, which is very different from the book, it's it's totally. very much uh, shining oriented, was phenomenal. Yeah, I loved the how movie. they ingrained their characters into the shining film. Blew me the hell away. The two high points in this film are one, the first challenge, which is the race, the race, because it's so well designed. It's like CG wise, it looks fantastic. It's exciting to watch it play out. The first time they raced through it, it was like, God damn, that was a badass action scene. And then the shining sequence, because it's so inventive and it really involves the audience. When I saw this and the guys going up to what was it? Room 23 or whatever it was. I forget the room number, the famous room. Uh, everyone starts screaming, no, don't do it. <laughs> uh, I will say though, I, I wish they had recast TJ Miller. In this movie, especially, yeah. you could have you easily put a different voice actor in there. Easily could have replaced, and that's all you needed to do. I I agree. Uh, anyway, this is the Blu-ray release, not the theatrical. So I'm going to talk about a little bit about the extras here. There's the '80s. You're the inspiration for Five and a Half Minutes, where Ernie Klein and the film's cast and crew discuss the things they love in the '80s, and Spielberg also briefly discusses why he cut the bulk of the references to movies that he made because the book has a lot of Spielberg references. This less so, although there's a lot of references to films that he produced like Back to the Future, but not necessarily directed. Uh, there's Game Changer Cracking the C- Code, which is the primary uh, featurette here, which is a very in-depth exploration of everything in here. I actually really enjoyed watching this. There's a lot of stuff I remember watching it going, I wonder how they did that. And this breaks it all down <coughs> for you. Um, in one of the, arguably the one of the best-looking films that is almost entirely shot on a green screen. Almost this entire movie. Almost every bit of it was on a green screen. Yeah. Um, there's effects for Brave New World for 24 minutes. It's a look at the visual effects specifically, um, including Spielberg being all geeking out like a little kid of realizing that he can do the pre-visualization. They have big screens, and when they've got the dots on them, he literally can see them as the characters moving on the screen 
screen right there as they're moving. And he's like, (laughs) 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 Um, there's level up sound for the future. Eight minute look at the sound design, Um, high score, end game for 10 minutes, which looks at the film score. And then Ernie and Ty's excellent adventure, which is 12 minutes of Ernie, Ernie Klein, the writer and Ty Sheridan, the lead actor sitting down and talking with the film ahead of its Austin premiere that for some reason has almost no footage of actual Austin in it. They keep telling, yeah, we're in Austin. Great. Let's see it. What, you're not going to take him out for barbecue at Franklin's or something? This is what I, I don't want to see you guys just sitting in a fucking closed set talking about this. It's like, what's the point? It's just another act. There's no adventure, is what I'm saying. You know what my biggest takeaway from Ready Player One was? What's that? I want Spielberg to make more fun movies because nobody shoots action. And I don't mean like balls to the wall action. I mean just movement like him. Mm-hmm. He does this handheld thing and his mastery of moving the camera by hand is second to none. I want him to make more fun films versus dramas. Wow. Sooner or later, we're going to get another Indiana Jan, so you may wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> uh, although I'm still curious to know if Lucas will actually be involved, because it sounds like from everything he said, he's just done being involved in film at all. Uh, and th- if so, this will be the first Indiana Jones film Lucas was not involved in, which I think is actually probably a good thing at this point. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you so much, Aaron, for My joining pleasure. me Thank once you again. For inviting me. It's always a pleasure having you on these things. Ah, I got a moth in the face. To be a moth. Um, and uh, catch, you're not doing your job. <laughs> we'll be back in another. Actually, the next one might be about two weeks or now. I know we had a whole slew of like every week there was a new digital noise. Might be a little bit longer for the next one, but not too much longer. I'm sending Aaron home with some movies. In fact, this time, <laughs> I, have to, I have to point out I have not come to Chris's house in the last like two months without being handed at least four movies to watch. He is correct. That is. Awesome. <laughs>